0: If you're comfortably able, if you'll remain standing to honor God's word, which comes to us from Philippians chapter 4. This morning we are at the end of our series on the Ten Commandments, and we are looking at the final commandment, you shall not covet. And I will be reading these words, uh, these wonderful words from the Apostle Paul. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. That now at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referencing not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances I have learned the secret of being well fed, and of going hungry, and of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Late in his life, the tycoon John D. Rockefeller was asked how much money is enough? How much money is enough? His famous answer was, Just a little more than one has. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your commandments, the gift of your law. We humbly ask this morning that you would be our teacher, that your Holy Spirit would be the voice that speaks to our hearts, to our minds we ask that your word, that your eternal word that does not change be the voice and the word that we hear this morning. Amen. Today we are at the final commandment, you shall not covet. The English definition of covet is to wish, long, or crave for something, especially that which belongs to someone else, to another person. The opposite of coveting is is contentment, to be content. A few years ago, an article appeared in Christianity Today, and it was titled, The Cult of the Next Thing. And it began like this. The author said, I belong to the cult of the next thing. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted into this cult. It happens by default, and not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. The cult of the next thing is consumerism, cast in religious terms. This cult has its own litany of sacred words, more, you deserve it, new, faster, cleaner, brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy, charge it, instant credit, no down payment, (laughs) no interest for three months. It has its own sacraments, credit and debit cards. It has its own ecstatic experiences, the spending spree, right? The cult of the next thing's central message proclaims, crave and spend for the kingdom of stuff is near. The cult teaches that our lives are measured by the abundance of our possessions Those caught up in the cult of the next thing live endlessly, relentlessly for, well, the next thing, the next weekend, the next vacation, the next purchase, the next experience. For us, the impulse to seek the next thing is, it's an instinct that is bred into us so young, it just almost feels genetic. It's our paradigm, our way of seeing, our unifying myth how could the world be otherwise? Like so many of us, I have to confess that I have unknowingly joined this cult so many times. And I find it very difficult to get out of it. What's coming next? Wouldn't it be wonderful if I had? Couldn't it be, couldn't it be possible that this could happen to me? And this narrative, this mantra continues over and over again. And we come to this commandment, this final commandment that says, you shall not covet what belongs to your neighbor. But yet I have this desire in me to want more. I I, I get this desire from looking at what other people have. I tend to think that I am less if I don't have what the neighbor has. Now, we may think, because we've been on this journey, we've been on this journey through the Ten Commandments, we may be tempted to think that uh, perhaps this commandment is a little more benign than the others. I mean, this one doesn't have the teeth like murder and adultery, right? I mean, it just doesn't strike us with the same weight, the same gravity. Um, On the surface, this doesn't appear to really injure or harm other people. It seems more attitudinal than punitive. I mean, really, is this, this is on the same list and the same list as some of these really egregious sins? John Newton said this, he said, I consider covetousness as the most generally prevailing and ensnaring sin by which professors of the gospel in our materialistic society are hindered in our spiritual progress he reminds us that this is not the end of the list. This one, like all of them, are central, and they're integrated. To live a life where I am constantly thinking, I wish I had what someone else has, is very, very damaging. It is hurting our world. It's hurting our society. It's hurting our families. It's hurting our churches. When we covet, we are unknowingly making, I think, three big Awful statements. And the first is we are admitting that we're really not trusting God. When we covet, what we're really saying is I just do not trust God at the end of the day. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question, what is the providence of God? And the answer is God's providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds heaven and earth together with all creatures by his hand. He rules in such a way that leaves and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and unfruitful years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and everything else come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. It's an amazing statement. All things come to us through his generosity, through his hand. All things, that means good seasons, fruitful seasons, happy seasons, That means seasons where all things are going right and you just want to get the remote control and say, can I just pause it here? (laughs) Can I just stop life here because it's just, I like this part. Yes. But so do droughts and so do seasons of what we might not wish for. But the confession says all things are provided by God and presented and he loves us and it's for our good. It's for our well-being, but he is the source and author. And so when I say, I really don't like what I have, I want what she has, I'm saying to God, I don't trust your good care. I really don't trust the way you are giving out. I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. Now, if you've been with us on this journey, you know that that's the first commandment. We shall have no other gods. We've seen this theme all throughout. In Jesus' day, there were a couple of schools of thought. One was the Stoics. The other was the Cynics. But they both taught that to go through this life, you needed to have self-reliance. You needed to be self-sufficient, to have sufficient quantity. That's the way to ensure you're going to have happiness. You need to have enough, guard enough, protect enough. You need to have it and carry it with you through life. Now, certainly this philosophical school has not died off. It's very alive in our western world. It's it's flourishing. But here's the problem. Contentment means that we're going to have to hold on to what we have. To be content and not covet, it means that not only I have to covet is to want what someone else has, but it also is saying that I'm going to have to then, if I'm not looking at my neighbor and what they have, what, if I just look at what I have, I'm going to have to hold on real tight to it. This is the source of my contentment. This is the source of my happiness. What happens to life when we do that? My constant companion is going to be stress and worry. What if I lose one of these things? What happens? And then we hold on tighter. And this is where we make some of our great, great mistakes in family and in relationships when we're holding on too tight. But it really doesn't matter what we are holding. We never quite ever feel strong enough. In spite of all that we have, we spend life trying to accumulate still more. I'll be more content if I have more. I'll be more happy if I have more. And reducing life to the effort to accumulate more is one of the best ways to lose freedom. And to be disconnected and discontented. Life will be spent lamenting the inevitable losses along the way. And at the end of the day, we're really trusting ourselves. We're really making ourselves out to be God and we're shutting God out of the equation. Instead, Confession teaches us and Paul teaches us. When it comes to us, we're supposed to be grateful. We're supposed to say and understand this comes from the Lord. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's wonderful, but sometimes we have to step back and say, if the Lord is providing me this season, maybe there's a reason. Let me listen. Let me pray through this season and see perhaps what God is doing. But at the end of the day, I understand His providence, his goodness, his provision. It really is not about what you and I have or hold. It's about how he is holding us. When we covet, we say to God, I do not trust you. The second thing we are saying we are we are not loving our neighbor when we covet. We're really not. And as we've seen in the second Tablet of Ten Commandments, it's all about how do I serve and care and be outward towards the neighbor. You know, she wouldn't have got that position without kissing up to the boss. right? You know, he's really not that smart if you think about it. You know, mom has always given to her more than to me. You know, it is so unfair that he was given that award when everyone knows I did more of the work. How do we react in seeing someone else's happiness or success? How do we react? What is our attitude towards that? Do we feel ourselves being called into question? If so, out of the hurt, Of our wounded self-esteem, we often seek to bring the other person down to our level by our words or our deeds. Since they make us feel low and unappreciated by their success, we feel we should bring them down to our or their deserved level. While others have been awarded or lauded or praised, I should have been offering congratulations. And I find that so often that's hard. I should be saying, it's so wonderful that you have received this. It's so amazing that they looked at you and said, good, good, well done. The best way to love the neighbor is to cheer and applaud and be gracious when they are given and they are achieving. That's the opposite of coveting. Instead, so often we mutter, we grind our teeth, we begrudge another person's blessing or good fortune. And this coveting, so dark and so evil, so competitive and so selfish, it, it just resonates in our hearts, and it's hurting so many relationships. You know, one of the, the worst parts about coveting, one of the worst aspects of it, is that we're most likely to feel envious of those who are similarly called, equipped, and gifted. Those people with whom we share the most, from whom we stand to learn the most, are those who we most resent. We are really the most vulnerable to breaking this covenant, to envying those who are closest to us, to our own gifts and to our own callings. And we see this playing out in families. We see this playing out in churches, in business and organization. We tend to look at those around us and think, "How come, why not? How come, not me?" And we're not loving our neighbors every time we think or say or speak or act in ways that isn't celebrating their good fortune. And finally, when we covet, we are not grateful. We do never it's impossible to have an attitude of gratitude if we're looking at what the others have and say, "I wish it was mine." When Paul wrote his letter to the church in Philippi, he was in prison. And this is so important to understand. He wrote from prison. He didn't have a thing. He didn't have any money. He had no community of friends, no prospects for a brighter future with a new company. But he concluded his letter by telling the church in Philippi that he had learned something important in prison. I have learned the secret, he said, of being well-fed, of going hungry, of having plenty, of being in need. I can do all things through his strength, through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is singing the joys of the content life. He's looking around. Now, he's in prison. (laughs) He's looking around saying, isn't this amazing what I have? Think about that. He's singing the joys of finding contentment. At no point do we have any suggestion that he's going, you know who really ought to be in prison? <laughs> you know, I've been in prison before. How come I get it again? I'll tell you, if I was in his position, my attitude probably would be much different. It's amazing. Paul experienced contentment and gratitude When he was trapped in the worst circumstances, when he was shipwrecked, when he was stoned and chased, when he was imprisoned, when he was being mocked, Paul didn't seek out the comfortable jobs, the quick buck. He didn't hide from opposition. He didn't retreat from challenge. He was interrupted continually, chased and beaten. All the evidence would suggest that Paul would say, why is this happening to me? It's unfair. I've been better, I've been good. How come this isn't happening to someone else? And yet no one in all of human history has written so convincingly, so autobiographically about being content and being grateful. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote this, what once had splendor has come to have no splendor at all because of the splendor that surpasses it. What Paul's saying is, in my hardship, in my season that God brought to me that was difficult, that was hard, that was lonely, I discovered some amazing thing. I used to think this would bring me glory and this would be, but it, it's not happening. But I discovered a new splendor that's bigger and grander. He, he found some things in prison that were of a, a greater importance. Hope. Faith. Faith courage, but most importantly, what he discovered in prison, when he had empty hands, when he had no possessions, what he discovered was that Christ was holding on to him. That is the secret of a content life. And that embrace, that firm hold that loving, grace-filled embrace comes in all circumstances. It's the greatest of splendor. I know how to have little, he said, and I know how to have plenty. I know how to have both because he's holding me in all these circumstances. And that's why Paul could say that you and I are to give thanks in every circumstance. When we covet, it is impossible to be grateful. And in every circumstance, we should be grateful because the greatest of splendors has been given to us. We've reached the end of the Ten Commandments series. We've been doing this for 11 weeks now Uh, through church. We've had midweek discussions. We've had small groups. We've had sermons. Last week, as I was leaving church, I was in the parking lot, and I was talking to a couple friends here in the church, and I said these words, I said, you know, I'm actually really looking forward to ending this series. (laughs) I said, because I'll tell you, going through all of these commandments every week, and praying through them, and studying, and preaching on them, I mean, I feel pretty rotten at this point. (laughs) I mean, I didn't I mean, I know I'm a mess, but I didn't know I was, you know, every time you do this, it's like, "Oh, I kept getting every week it's like, "Not again." I I just keep I mean, let's move on to something else. And as I was driving home last Sunday, it occurred to me that I was doing it wrong. Knowing how bad we are, how many sins we commit should push us to not see how bad we are, but how good God is. Thomas Merton said this, The devil makes many disciples by preaching against sin. That just struck me so hard this week as I read that statement. The devil makes many disciples, I meaning the devil loves it when the preacher stands up and, has, and says, bad dog, bad dog, shame, guilt, shame, guilt, bad dog, bad dog. You know bad dog sermons, bad dog. The devil loves that. Why? It's because we leave the sanctuary with a couple of different tragic attitudes. One is, I will become moralistic and legalistic. And if I do, I'm going to be on constant lookout for whose sins are worse than mine. That's no way to live. Or I will become self-loathing and think, oh my gosh, what a terrible person I am. And that's also wrong because that's not the way Christ sees me. In other words, by becoming solely focused on abstaining from sin, this crushing moralism, it robs us from enjoying God. Jesus said something amazing in Luke 15. There's this amazing scene. We read that all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Him. Sometimes we don't grasp all the weight of that. The God of the universe is standing in their midst, and who comes to Him? The really, really guilty. The really bad sinners, the really bad cheats and tax collectors, felt comfortable being around him. So you imagine the scene, Jesus is standing here teaching, and the sinners come close, and on the outside are the religious serious, the Pharisees, the senior pastors, the scribes, the associate pastors, the interns, they're all on the outside. And they were grumbling. And you know what they were saying? They were looking at that inner circle. This fellow welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And then Jesus saw what was going on and heard their voices, knew what they were thinking in their hearts. And he told three stories. He says the kingdom of God is like a shepherd. When he loses one sheep, he leaves the ninety-nine. He searches for that one who's lost. Jesus says, you know what God is like? God will do anything to be near and find sinners. People who, like me, last week were saying, oh, I just can't believe all I've done. He comes looking for me. He wants to be with me. Jesus said it's like a woman who loses a coin and she just searches the whole house. Frantic to find it. And then he told his greatest story of all, about two sons. One who was a terrible younger brother, a brat, and treated his father awfully in his family. And another, a self-righteous older son who was a nightmare, thumbing his nose at the rest of the family, thinking he was so good. In both of those situations, the father, Jesus said, went out to find. Went out down the road to find the prodigal son who had wasted the family fortune. Went out to the field to find the older son and say, I've always loved you, would you please come and be at our party? This kind of reaction to our sinfulness is something that we're just not prepared to understand the depth of grace and love we should be absolutely stunned today by how kind jesus was to sinners our sins they are many but his mercy is more it's always more why do we study the 10 commandments why do we go through this journey it's to discover once again how good god is this is what luther and calvin said we ought to be doing we ought to be at that point now when we finish going through the study we ought to say i cannot believe how good he is i i never quite grasped the depth of his forgiveness and now in lent we're seeing the lengths to which he would go to find us and by the way he likes being with sinners He's a friend, a friend of sinners. The healing I need from coveting comes from a new desire, a new affection. And so I invite Jesus into my life and I I get to know him in a personal relationship. And as that happens, I discover his love for me and I begin to see myself in a different light. I no longer have to compare myself to the neighbor, to other people, or wish that I was like them or had what they have. Because I understand that Jesus accepts me, wants to be with me, likes being with me, embraces me. I'm free to enjoy what I have without feeling driven to want what I don't have. And I can even feel really, really good when other people are blessed and are given good fortune. And I can begin to share my time and my talent And I have a brand new relationship with God's law and commandments because I want to honor them and live them because I just know how much I'm loved. Jesus, the friend of sinners, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for these commandments and... We thank you how you have given us a gift, showing us how you want us to live. But mostly this day, we thank you for Jesus who came for us. He came looking for us and for our salvation. Amen.